Let us pray together. Thank you, our God, for revealing yourself to us in Scripture. What a breathtaking thought that the infinite personal God beckons us to come closer, to behold your glorious self, to know and to worship the persons of the Blessed Trinity. Deliver us from idolatry today, particularly idolatries we did not know we held, by blazing your truth into our hearts and minds as found in your inerrant and sufficient word alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue through uh, revisiting of basic doctrines, we are studying uh, God the Holy Spirit. This is third of what I project to be four in that part of our series, the delight of God the Holy Spirit. As we've remarked in the past, that the Spirit of God is difficult to know. He's challenging to know for many of us because he doesn't have the personal name that the Father has, that the Son has. He's called the Spirit. So how do you know a person? We've seen beyond doubt that Scripture does reveal him as a person, as uh, God. So how do you know a person? Well, you can know a person, you can know a lot about a person by what that person loves, by what that person delights in, by what that person does, which also often points to what he loves and delights in. And so today we're going to gain precious, vital insights into the person of God, the Holy Spirit, by studying just exactly that, studying his delight. And his delight, we will see, is all about Jesus. So Roman numeral one, the Spirit's delight shown for Jesus' birthday. Yes, that's the word that goes in that blank. Perhaps you didn't expect that one, but that's the word, Jesus' birthday. How does the Spirit show his delight in Jesus' birthday? Well, first consider with me the, the Spirit's present. Yes, the Spirit had a present already wrapped up and given and prepared for uh, the coming, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what was the Spirit's present? Number one, it was a book. The Spirit had prepared for Jesus a book. Uh, turn to First Peter, sorry, Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 21. We'll look again at a verse we've looked at before, but it's worth the reminder. Always. In fact, that's what Peter says he wrote Second Peter for, a reminder. So, Second Peter 1, 21. Peter says, for no prophecy, and he speaks there of the preaching of the prophets and what marked a prophet, what was a prophet, what's the point of being a prophet? God puts his words in your mouth. You speak the words of God. How could men speak the words of God? Peter tells us how they couldn't and how they could. For no prophecy was ever made by the will of man, but men being moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So these men, and we've studied this before, these men were carried by the Holy Spirit with the result that everything they wrote, this, our Old Testament, was by men who were carried by the Spirit of God. So in practical application and in, in specificity, what that means is that the whole, the, the whole Old Testament is the product of this process. We have the Old Testament because the Holy Spirit carried 
holy men, and they spoke from God as a result of that ministry of the Spirit. So think further about that, what that means then, and we saw a number of uh, scriptures that teach the same thing. We, what that means is that every line and every word of the Old Testament is breathed by God through the Holy Spirit. It's a product of the Spirit's work. So the Old Testament is exactly the book it is because that's what the Holy Spirit set about to accomplish, to produce. It exactly represents the mind, the heart of the Holy Spirit. And so over these hundreds of years of composition, the Holy Spirit rested on and moved through the men who wrote the Old Testament. As we saw then in the six works of creation, that the Spirit hovered over the face of the waters, over creation, and over those six days executing God's will, the Spirit brought creation from where it was good to where it was finally very good. So the Holy Spirit rests on these writers in the Old Testament and moves on them until the Old Testament was brought from where it was begun to where it was completed and ready for the birth of the Lord Jesus. God knew when Jesus was going to be born. And so God worked through the Holy Spirit so that exactly that book was ready before the birth of Jesus Christ. And that product perfectly presents and reflects the mind of the Holy Spirit. This, he, I mean, you, you know, often your child will give you a gift and he'll say, I made this for you. Well, the Holy Spirit made this for Jesus. The Holy Spirit made this gift that was all ready when Jesus was born. In fact, it was ready 400 years before he was born. Now, wh- what is the point of that? What's the effect of that? Well, of course, the book was not directly for Jesus' benefit, not to tell Jesus things that he wouldn't know uh, by the revelation of God. It was for the benefit of those to whom he came. And what does that book contain? Well, it contains rich prophecy and typology, painting out the person, the work, the career of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of that laid out there in that Old Testament. We'll see more about that later. So it's all out there for 400 years. And what's the point of that? Well, it would give certainly plenty of time for the people who he was coming to, to read it, to study it, to understand it, right? Shouldn't 400 years be pretty good time to get an idea of what's going to be in that book? So that when Jesus comes, they can say, ah, I get it. This is him. This is the one this book's been pointing us to. And this is what he's come to do and who he is. And this is the response I've got to give to him. Yes, that was all ready for Jesus' coming. That is the Spirit's present for his birthday. And what was the theme of that book? I've hinted at it. Let's look at it straight up. Number two in your outline, of course. What was the theme? What was its theme? Well, the theme of that book was Jesus, simply, in a word. He was the theme of the book. First of all, let's consider the first five uh, letter A, and when I say the first five, I mean the first five books of the Old Testament. What do we call the first five books? The Pentateuch or the Law of Moses, exactly right. Genesis through Deuteronomy. Well, what are the first five books uh, about? Uh, Turn to Romans 10 verse 4 and see what Paul says about this. Very, very illuminating. Romans 10 verse 4. In a fascinating chapter, in a fascinating section, Paul says this, almost in passing, but we mustn't miss it. Romans 10.4, he says, For Christ 
is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now you see, I've noted there in the, in the parentheses that end means goal or culmination. Now in other words, uh, you read end of the law, you might take it to mean that well, then, then when Christ came, the law of Moses was put out of business. And there's truth to that. The law of Moses was uh, replaced by the um, age of the church. Uh, by the uh, death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But Paul is saying more than that. He, he uses a Greek word that carries the idea of where a process ends, where a process culminates, that this thing, these things are done to rest at this end. They, they are reaching towards and, and finally uh, reposing on this end. He's the culmination. And that, I think, is the sense that Paul means it. He's saying, in other words, that everything that's in the Old Testament, the, the stories and the laws and the symbolic um, uh, observations, as well as the prophecies such as Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 49.10 and, and, and uh, Deuteronomy 18, that all of these things were in their ways, all of them pointing forward to Christ and would come to an end on Christ. They would culminate in Christ. But he was their intent. He was where they were aimed. Now remember, how was the Old Testament written? Because Moses was a very clever man and studied hard? What did Peter tell us? Who is the author behind the author? The Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit moved Moses to write five books that were intended to culminate in Jesus Christ. That was the Spirit's mind in everything he wrote Moses to write, to write something that would point forward to the Lord Jesus, to his person, to his ministry. To confirm that, look at John chapter 5 with me. Easy enough to find, Gospel of John chapter 5. And we will look at verses 45 through 47. Jesus here is in controversy with Jewish leaders. And he says in verse 45, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses. What a shocker to hear for them. Moses, but he's our own boy. He's our guy. We got Moses right on our t-shirts, you know. How can you say Moses is going to accuse us? And yet he says, the one who accuses you is Moses in whom you've set your hope. Uh, he, he's the one you, you, you're trusting because of your uh, loyalty to Moses that you're going to be saved. Yet he says, Jesus says, oh no, Moses will rise up and he'll be the one in the dock accusing you or the one in the court accusing you. How can that be? Well, look at verse 46. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus says, Jesus says, Moses wrote about me. He didn't write words that later could be made to somehow sort of talk about me. No, Moses wrote about me. Now remind me, how did Moses write about Jesus? Was it because he had a really keen foresight? How did he write about Jesus? By the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit moved Moses to write about Jesus in these first five books of the Old Testament. So all of this is because of what we just studied recently, the Spirit's work of inspiration and inscripturation, that he led the writers of Scripture to think what they thought, pick the words that they picked, and write them down 
on, well, leather or papyrus or whatever they used to write their writings down. So that's just the first five books about, of the Old Testament. What about the entire Old Testament? Well, that's letter B, as to the whole, W-H-O-L-E. The W is important. As to the whole, W-H-O-L-E. And where better to go than Hebrews chapter 1? And just one of the most amazing beginnings of any book ever written. Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2. It's a big, long, complex sentence. (coughs) God, having spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets, how? In many portions and in many ways. Bit by bit, manner by manner, he says. What, What was this all leading up to? In these last days spoke to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. So, where do we find, as we were told, that God spoke by the prophets? This is special revelation, not general revelation, not just what you can see in creation, but the words given through these holy men. Where do we find these words that God spoke bit by bit and in different manners? Where are they recorded? In what we call the Old Testament, in Scripture, the law, the law and the prophets, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Those are all names for the same thing. And, and who is the author behind all these prophets who spoke in many portions and in many manners? Well, the Holy Spirit. So where were all these, you could say, clues? Where were these breadcrumbs? Where were these little arrows? Where were these indicators? Where were they all leading up to? Where would they culminate? In the sun. Prophet, 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 the prophet the Son, the final revelation of God, you see. So, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit authored a masterpiece that bit by bit and turn by turn led up to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have different sound effects every week. Now you're going to make me have to think of something next week. It's something exciting to go outside. I'll start thinking about it later. So, this is what the Holy Spirit created, bit by bit. Something that led up to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus himself says this. Turn to Luke chapter 24. That's the next scripture we're looking at. You see in your outline, Luke chapter 24. And these are the words of the Lord Jesus after his resurrection. There's no mysteries. There's no, nothing uh, remaining to be unveiled. He has been crucified. He's been buried. And he's risen from the grave. So you, you see, as he says to these poor sad people who are just so sad because Jesus died and they really had such great hopes for him, <laughs> and they're unknowingly walking with Jesus. Uh, that's a whole great sermon in itself or great meditation we could have. But what he says to them, now in verse 25, notice Jesus does not say, you know, I can't really blame you. Nobody could have seen this coming. <laughs> that is not what Jesus says, is it? And he doesn't say, well, you know, he doesn't even say, well, you know, I sympathize. There's some challenging stuff there. You know, it really takes a special mind to see it. No, no. Look at what Jesus actually says. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. 
Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He felt they should have seen it. By thanks to whose ministry should they have seen it? The ministry of the Holy Spirit laying out that book that reveals all this. And then you drop down your eyes to verses 44 through 47, and to the similarly gobsmacked apostles, he says, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I would love to have been in on that Bible study. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So he says, he opened up to them the writing concerning him in all parts of the Old Testament. Now, what does that mean? That this, again, this could be a great study in itself, but just to speak very briefly, that does not mean that every word and syllable in the Old Testament is directly about Jesus. And so, though many writers have gone and allegorized the Old Testament and found little things, you know, in David and Goliath and so forth, so that, you know, you know the, the joke about the Sunday school kid who who uh, was under Mrs. Johnson for 40, who taught there for 47 years, but she was sick one week, so a substitute came in, thought she'd break the ice by, by showing, just get the kids talking, you know, and that's always a challenge with, with younger kids and younger classes. So she just brought pictures of animals, you know. How hard is that? She picked up a, a, a picture of an elephant. She says, what's this? And they all stood there silently. She said, okay, maybe they don't know elephants. So she picks up a squirrel. She knows everybody knows squirrels. And what's this? And again, nobody would speak. And finally, one boy in the back of the class speaks up and says, well, it looks like a squirrel, but I'm going to say Jesus. And that kind of is that kind of teaching that everything's Jesus. Well, everything's not Jesus. The, the Old Testament is not Christocentric. I would say it's Christotelic, that it all points to Jesus. It all leads to Jesus. One way or another, it all takes us towards Jesus. And that's what Jesus says. Every part of it, one way or another, points forward to him. And who wrote that book that points forward to him? The Holy Spirit. And had it all ready and finished before he was born, his birthday present. Uh, finally, 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11, I'll just read to you. But listen, 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, inquiring to know what time or what kind of time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Why the Spirit of Christ? We've seen because he proceeds from Christ, from the Son and the Father. And in the, in the prophets, the Holy Spirit was leading them to speak of the time and the person, the sufferings and the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the Old Testament. That's what it's about, Peter says. Jesus says. And so note well then, when the Holy Spirit wrote a book, it's centered on Jesus. And that was his present for Jesus' birthday, all ready and wrapped up.
Now, let's look letter B at the Spirit's preparation for Jesus' birth. We saw his present for his birthday, his birthday present. Now, what of the Spirit's preparation for Jesus' birth? Well, Luke one thirty-five. that's probably worth turning to, though it's a quick one, but we'll be around those chapters, so you might as well. Luke one thirty-five. Luke 1.35, the angel is speaking to Mary and preparing her for what's going to happen and tells her she's going to be the mother of Messiah. And she says, how's that going to happen? I'm a virgin. So it's not going to happen the way that all other births have happened, clearly. Verse 35, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Now, that's a deep teaching there that teaches us that the body of the Lord Jesus was prepared for him by God the Holy Spirit. And notice the language. I wonder whether you thought this. It's meant to take our minds back to the beginning of the Bible. How so? Well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you as if to say it would rest over her like the Holy Spirit did when? Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, as the Spirit rested over the waters in the first creation, what's happening now? The head of the new creation is going to be born, the one who will make all things new, the one who is the pivot of history, because of whom creation will be redeemed from sin and the elect of God will be saved from sin and constituted God's people. That head of the new creation is about to be born. And as the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters in the old creation, so he comes upon the womb of the virgin in preparing for the new creation come upon you, and then he says the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Well, that would take a careful reader's mind at that time back to the tabernacle. Exodus chapter 40, verse 35. In Exodus 40, 35, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had dwelt upon it. And the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament uses the same word the angel does, episkiadzo overshadows it. So as the glory cloud, the the depiction of the Holy Spirit overshadowed the holy place and the holy of holies, so the Holy Spirit would overshadow the womb of the virgin. And as the angel says, the holy child born in you will be called the son of God. You see? So uh, Stephen Wellam, a modern theologian, said God himself worked as the efficient cause in the conception of Christ as the head of the new creation. Amen. And this should not shock us. Of course, the human nature of Jesus was created. It was human. So that means it was finite. God the Son was not created. God the Son is eternal. But God the Son took on a human uh, body and joined the human nature to his person so that God the Son has two natures. He has a finite created human nature and the infinite uncreated divine nature. And that finite human nature was prepared for him by God the Holy Spirit. So uh, Sinclair Ferguson, another very deep uh, contemporary theologian, says this, only by the work of the Holy Spirit, only by the work of the Spirit could the divine person of the Logos, the Word, 
assume genuine human nature, come in the likeness of sinful man, Romans 8.3, and yet remain holy, harmless, undefiled, Hebrews 7.26, the Holy One, as Luke 1.35 says. Or more beautifully said by Charles Spurgeon, he says, the formation of the immaculate body of the Holy Child, Jesus, was by the energy of the Holy Ghost. So, for Jesus' birth, the Holy Spirit produced a book which pointed forward to Jesus, and he produced the body in which the Son of God would become incarnate, take on human nature for us and for our salvation. So we've seen the Spirit's present, the Spirit's preparation for Jesus' birth. Now let us see, let's look at the Spirit's celebration of Jesus' birthday. The Spirit's celebration of Jesus' birthday. Before his birth, we see verses of anticipation. Number one, I told you just to go to Luke 1 and stay there. First, we'll look at Luke 1, verses 41 to 43. Luke 1, 41 to 43, and here we're reading about Elizabeth, a relative of Mary, mother of John the Baptist, and she has uh, conceived in her old age, despite being infertile, she's conceived a child, and Mary goes to see her. And so now read, starting with verse 41, and it happened that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she cried out with a loud voice and said, okay, pause there with me. So Luke tells us she's filled with the Holy Spirit and says something. So we're to think that her words, the words she said, are prompted in her by who or what? By the Holy Spirit. That's why Luke tells us that. So of all the things this woman could talk about, the sin of Israel, the evil Romans, Terrible presidents that, that America would eventually have. I mean, he could talk about anything he wanted. Wonderful presidents America would have. You, you fill in your own names in both columns. All the things he could talk about. What was the thing that he really wanted Elizabeth to talk about? Well, you know, we're, we're in luck. We can find out. Because it goes on to say, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me? that the mother of my Lord should come to me. The Holy Spirit moves her to rejoice at the presence of Jesus in the womb of the Virgin. The mother of my Lord. So the thing the Holy Spirit brings excitement about is Jesus, is the birth of Jesus. But he's not done. Staying in Luke chapter 1, now look at Luke 1, verses 67 through 79. We won't read the whole section, but Luke 1, 67. There's been somebody who's been very quiet through this whole thing. Who's that? Why, that'd be Zechariah. He, he had a cork put in his mouth because of what he'd said. But now the cork is pulled and he's got something to say. Look at Luke 1, 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying... Well, boy, oh boy, now whatever he says then, he not only is filled with the Holy Spirit, but he prophesies. And how do men prophesy? Do they do it by their own interpretation or will? No, how do they do it? Carried by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so he's going to speak words that the Holy Spirit is going to put in his head to speak. And what are those words going to be about? I wonder, he's about to be the, the father of a, the first prophet in centuries. Surely he'll say something about that. Well, yes, indeed, but look at what he says. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and accomplished redemption for his people. 
How? Would, would John the Baptist redeem his people? No. And raised up a horn of salvation for us. How? Would John the Baptist be a horn of salvation? No. In the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old, but we've just been reading that, haven't we? Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy towards our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath, to rescue us, and so forth. And, and so he's talking about God's salvation, the horn of salvation, this child of David, the Messiah is who he's talking about. But he does say something about his son, Verse 76, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to make ready his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation, the forgiveness of their sins. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Why, that's Messiah. That's Messiah. So, what does the Holy Spirit move Zechariah to speak about? To speak about the Lord Jesus. To speak about him who is to be born. And so, that is the anticipation the Holy Spirit brings. What about now when Jesus is born? What is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Well, we see jubilation in number two. If that's not a word you write much. It is J-U-B. I-L, that's all you have to write. Jubilation, meaning great celebration, great enjoyment and excitement. And we see that in Luke chapter 2, verse 25. Jesus has been born. His parents bring him to Jerusalem. And we read in verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the comfort of Israel. That's the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Ah, the Holy Spirit again. Well, he's all over the birth narrative of Jesus. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. Oh, what? what? What special word did he have from the Spirit? That he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. So the Holy Spirit tells this man, the Messiah's coming, and you'll live to see him. You will live to see him, the Holy Spirit told him. And he came in the Spirit, guided by the Holy Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus, he took him into his arms and blessed God, this man who's filled and led by the Holy Spirit. And he says, Now, Master, you're releasing your slave in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. The Holy Spirit prepared this party-goer, if you will, to celebrate Jesus when he saw him, led him in the temple, and said, in effect, to him, there, that's the one I told you about. And he goes and celebrates Jesus. So the Holy Spirit delights all over the coming and the birth of Christ, prepares a, a, a birthday present, prepares the body, prepares anticipation, gives jubilation. So not too long ago, we had a sermon about the meaning of Christmas. Suppose you ask the Holy Spirit about the meaning of Christmas, meaning the celebration of Christ's birth. Well, he wrote a book <laughs> preparing for Christmas, preparing for the incarnation and the career of Jesus Christ. And he moved individual after individual to celebrate the birth of Christ. The Holy Spirit would say, well, Christmas, nativity, 
should be about the celebration of Christ. This made me think of something in our own family's life years ago when we lived in Sacramento, and my daughter was pregnant with her first child, Timothy, and they were in our house. She was actually in labor in our house. She was in our, there's a longer, more interesting story, but just to tell you the the punchline, if you will. She was in our room. They had our room. They had our room and our master bedroom, our master bathroom for all this time. And she was in labor through the day. And we were in waiting through the day. We were out there eagerly waiting, standing ready to help if, there, if help was needed. But we were standing by. And I had just been sent out to get uh, Sprite, as I recall. The, the, the mother particularly needed Sprite for this process. So I, I ran out and got Sprite and came back. And not too long, I don't know the relationship of the Sprite to this next event, but, but not too long after I came back, my son-in-law comes running out from our room breathless and weary, and he just says in the most excited voice, he's here, he's here, because his firstborn son has been born. And I think of that, and I think of these acts of the Holy Spirit to produce in the people of God. He's here, he's here. The one told about through all of the centuries of Old Testament revelation. The one whose way has been paved by all of this revelation. The one whom John the Baptist is being sent to further prepare the way for. He's here. God's Messiah is here. So we see the Spirit's delight then shown for Jesus' birthday. But now let's look at the Spirit's delight shown in Jesus' mission. Roman numeral 2. In Jesus' mission. And in that mission we see a continual presence. Now, this is the different word presence. <laughs> P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, not T-S. P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. The continual presence of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' ministry. This was prophesied in the book of Isaiah. First, if you were to turn back to Isaiah chapter 11, now, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is present and He's active, but honestly, He's kind of come and go. He'll come on a judge here. He'll come on a prophet there. He may come on a king, but He's not in constant presence, he, and He's not constantly present in any individual. You remember David, after his sin with Bathsheba, he says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Not, not worried about losing his salvation, but he wanted the Spirit resting on him as king. Ah, but there would be one on whom the Spirit would permanently rest and whose coming would bring an age of the Holy Spirit such as had never been seen. And that one is spoken of in Isaiah chapter 11. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, whose father is Jesse, David's father, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. He won't rush on him and depart. He won't come on him and go. He will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh, and so forth. What a beautiful person this person is going to be. All adorned and decked out by the presence of the Holy Spirit on him. It is the Holy Spirit who, whose presence on this one would make him such a king as had never been seen, and such a man as had never been seen. The Spirit would rest on him. And there are a number of verses along the same lines. Just one more, Isaiah 42, verse 1. 
speaking of Messiah, speaking of the spirit, the uh, servant of the Lord, Isaiah 42, 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul is well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah 42, 1, I will put my spirit upon him. So it's prophesied in this book that points forward to the Lord Jesus that he would have the Holy Spirit rest on him. And it's also uh, narrated for us by Luke. Turn to Luke chapter 4. Pretty easy book to find. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter 4, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And we'll look at these verses I've listed for you. Verse 1. Now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan where he was baptized and was being led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. Led around by the Spirit as he's tempted by the devil. Well, he's been baptized, so now he's entering on his, his public ministry. And the first thing that the Spirit leads him is he leads him to be tempted as the first Adam was. You remember the first Adam was tempted by the devil. How did that work out? Fell like a pinata. I mean, he, he, just, he, he just face-planted instantly. And he had all the food he could want, and all the rest he could want, everything he could need. And here, the, second, the last Adam, the last man, the second Adam is led into the desert to be tempted. But, but twice, Luke says, he's full of the Holy Spirit, and he's led around by the Holy Spirit. So from the very start of his ministry, the Holy Spirit's presence is seen on him. He rests on him, just as Isaiah said. Uh, verse 13, same chapter. Well, I say verse 13. Uh, I mean verse 14. So close. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. So, in the power of the Spirit, Jesus begins his ministry, and he's in this synagogue, and what does he preach about? We see in verse 18, he reads this, he turns to Isaiah chapter 61, and reads this prophecy, which is another one we didn't read in Isaiah. I told you there were more. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. So there he is, Jesus himself, speaks of the prophecy that the Spirit was on him. The Spirit was on him through his whole ministry. Uh, it's summarized in the book of Acts, Acts 10.38, as Peter is telling these Gentiles about him. And Peter says this about Jesus in Acts 10.38, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit. Anointed, ekrisen, krisen. That's the word we get Christos from, the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one because he's anointed with the Holy Spirit. Anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. So he anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. Uh, so notice the, uh, the, the, the ministry of Jesus is characterized by the presence of the Holy Spirit. So continual presence, and then secondly, letter B, limitless supply. Turn to John chapter 3, Gospel of John chapter 3, and you'll see limitless supply. Again, not like the kings or judges or even prophets of old on whom the Spirit would come and leave. 
He would come and do a work and then leave. Forward the theocratic purpose and then be gone from that person. No, this is different. John 3, 34 and 35, we read, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Meaning he, God the Father, gives the Spirit to God the Son without measure. That's confirmed by the next verse. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And the Father gives the Spirit to the Son without measure. Now notice the present tense. This is an ongoing thing. There's no start or finish to this. All Jesus' life, the Father gives him the Holy Spirit. And so this is why so many wonderful verses are true, such as John 1.16. John 1.16, the apostle writes, For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. His fullness, why is he so full? Because as a man, he's constantly given to by the Holy Spirit. As a man, he needs the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, within the Trinity, all the persons of the Godhead dwell in fellowship with each other and, and um, are, in, are present in all of their works. They're one. He's one God. But the man, Jesus, is constantly receiving of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes him who he is and fills him and gives him the words that he speaks. He speaks God's words because God continually and without measure, uh, unlike every other human being, without measure, gives the Holy Spirit to him. And then finally, letter C, climactic enablement. Climactic enablement. Now, this is a very deep verse we're looking at here. But Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14. And there are many different trans, uh, interpretations among good people. And my purpose is not to give you a lecture and give you 17 different choices, but to tell you what I think the writer is saying and how and why and to what effect. It's one of those verses, I wonder if you read it and you, you just maybe went, huh? And then moved on. You just kind of have to do that with the Bible. I mean, there's all of us, we, we just read things that we go, huh? And then we move on or else we've stopped reading for the day. So Hebrews 9.14 might be one of those. Let me start with this, the start of the sentence in verse 13. For if the blood of... Bo- of <laughs> For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, and they do, how much more will the, <clears throat> will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So how much more will the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The blood of Christ who did what? Through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Now there are some who say that this eternal spirit is his his human spirit, but I don't believe there's any place where his human spirit is called the eternal spirit. I think the LSB is right to capitalize that word spirit. It'd be helpful if the Greek manuscripts had capital letters in lowercase, but they don't. Those are all things the translators have to pick. And they pick to capitalize it, and I think that they were right to do that. That the writer is telling us that the sacrifice of Christ was made through the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit moved and directed him and was the person in in fellowship with whom he offered himself as a sacrifice for the elect, for his people's sins. 
So, but what, what's the meaning of that? Let's try to parse that out a little bit. Well, in John chapter 17, which we all know is the, the high priestly prayer of Christ, he says this in John 17, 19, speaking of the elect, who, who the Father had given him from the foundation of the world so that he could give eternal life to them, that subset of humanity who were his people. And he says in John 17, 19, for their sake, I sanctify myself. Hagiadzo, I, I consecrate myself. I set myself apart to the service and ownership of God. For their sake, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. So that sanctification speaks of his consecration as their priest. His consecrating himself to make the sacrifice that they would need, that they might be sanctified, sanctified in truth. They would need a sacrifice, and their high priest would make that sacrifice, but unlike every other sacrifice, the sacrifice that that high priest made would be himself. I sanctify myself. Not an animal, not a bull, not a goat, not a lamb, not a sheep. I sanctify myself. And he does this by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. A deep theologian of, of the Holy Spirit and many other things, John Owen, who wrote in the 1600s, he said this, of Christ, he says, he dedicated himself to be an offering to God, and he did this through the effect. He did this through the effectual operation of the Holy Spirit. This was not an act he did in isolation. It was an act he did on the, in that same presence and leading of the Holy Spirit that we read about in the other verses before this one. The Holy Spirit didn't leave him in this process. The Holy Spirit led him to make himself a sacrifice for his people. And so John Owen further speaks of, listen, those principal graces of the Spirit which he acted in his offering of himself unto God, which is what made him an obedient, a redemptive offering. In what spirit and in what manner and in what way did he offer himself? And just to single out a few that, that Scripture speaks of, for instance, the spirit of obedience. Jesus did this in obedience. Uh, John chapter 4, verse 34. I'll just suggest you write these down. We won't turn to these. John 4, 34. Remember that the disciples are wondering, you know, Jesus didn't get any food. What's going on here? It's a woman at the well. And Jesus says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And the finishing of that work was his sacrifice. To do his will and to finish his work. So he, he sacrificed himself in that in that commitment to obedience, in humble submission. Philippians 2.8, Paul writes, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, submissive to the point of death, even death on a cross. He didn't do it in rebellion or resentment or resistance. He did it in humble submission. And this was a grace of the Holy Spirit preparing him for and making him this redemptive offering. And he did it out of love for his elect love for his people, love for those for whom he was dying. Galatians 2.20. Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ, Paul says, and I, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus did it in obedience. He did it in humble submission. He did it in love. These were among the equipping graces of the Holy Spirit on his person, sanctifying him 
as the offering, as he offered himself by the eternal spirit for us to cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Finally, letter D, revelatory and doxological completion. You say, thanks a lot. Well, that's all right. (laughs) Revelatory and doxological. What does doxological mean? It means it's about glory. That's what doxology is about, giving glory to God. Doxological has to do with giving glory, and I'll show you what I mean by it. Revelatory and doxological completion. Turn with me finally to John chapter 16. This is where we'll end today. John chapter 16. read a little bit earlier. And we'll look at verses 12 through 14. Now these are so full and so deep, verses 12 through 14. Now Jesus says, I still have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Now I just want to say a brief aside here. There are people who say that the idea of a canon that would close, you know, that that one day revelation would be complete and we'd be able to say this is it, this is all that God has to say. They say that's nowhere in the Bible. Well, I'd say it's right here in the Bible. Uh, He says, I have many more things to say to you. He doesn't say, I have infinite number of things to say to you. And he doesn't say, I have many more things to say to everybody. He says, I have many more things to say to you. Now, that suggests to me that Jesus had not done all his teaching, but he would. He would finish his teaching to these men. So it would need to be complete while they were still alive because he said he's going to do this to them. He's going to do this in their number. So uh, to go on, verse 12, many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak from himself, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. Now that's revelatory. He would, he would be showing them the things that God would give him to show them. He would continue the teaching of Christ to them. He would continue to give them what Jesus gave him to give them. So that as we saw in the past, what like Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 14, 37, anyone who's prophet or spiritual should acknowledge the things that I write to you, that they are what? The commandment of the Lord. Why are they? Because of this promise of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit would come and guide them into all truth. Ah, but now read verse 14. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. Uh, Now there's the doxological, and they're tied together. The Holy Spirit would glorify Jesus by revealing to them the words of Jesus, the words about Jesus, the truth of Jesus. So we have, I've shown you we have in the Old Testament the completion of the Holy Spirit's work, and what I'm showing you now is we have in the New Testament the final completion of the Holy Spirit's work. The, the Old Testament was his birthday present for Jesus, and you could say that the New Testament, you could say it's his, his reigning present for Jesus, because it tells of Jesus' ministry, present ministry, and future ministry, and it is given for his church's edification. So, but to, to get back to these words, and I do want to focus on these words, the net effect is the glorification of Christ. This is what the Holy Spirit came to do. He did not come to glorify himself. He did not come to say, hey, look at me. I want you all to pay attention to me for my sake. I want you all to, to, to focus your attention on me. No, he's most pleased when Jesus is glorified because this is exactly what he came to do. He came to glorify Jesus. And how does he glorify Jesus? 
by the words and truth of Jesus, by shining the spotlight on Jesus. This is the Spirit's delight. We've seen it's always been the Holy Spirit's delight, and it is still today the Spirit's delight. The Spirit's delight is to glorify the Lord Jesus. He's glorified when His Word is preached, when His person is preached, when His truth is preached, and this is what the Holy Spirit is all about, giving that truth and pointing the spotlight on the Lord Jesus because His great delight is Jesus. That's it. What is the delight of the Holy Spirit, of God the Holy Spirit? It's God the Son. And so how can you tell when a ministry is a ministry of the Holy Spirit? It's when the Word of God is taught and Jesus is glorified. Where do I get those ideas? Right here. Right exactly here. This is what the Spirit did. He brought the Word of God to glorify Jesus. So the mark of a Spirit-filled ministry is not that it calls itself a Spirit-filled ministry. I would dare say, I mean, I'd go down a limb and say, Probably any, any ministry that calls itself a spirit-filled ministry is probably not a spirit-filled ministry. Because what the Spirit does when He fills is He glorifies Christ. He glorifies Christ. And so we see here. So there's why, there's why I close with you today. What is the delight of God the Holy Spirit? The delight of God the Holy Spirit is God the Son, Jesus Christ. That's his delight. And so what's the application of that? Can't say it better, as usual, than Charles Spurgeon said it. So let me read you what Charles Spurgeon says. This, this is exactly what I would say. Only why would I say it when he said it better? So here's my conclusion, as said 100 years or so ago by Charles Spurgeon. It is the chief office of the Holy Spirit to glorify Christ. He does many things, but this is what he aims at in all of them to glorify Christ. Brethren, what the Holy Spirit does must be right for us to imitate. Therefore, let us endeavor to glorify Christ. To what higher ends can we devote ourselves than to do something which, to which God the Holy Ghost devotes himself? Be this then your continual prayer. Blessed Spirit, help me ever to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. And our Father, that is our prayer. We pray that we will be full of God the Holy Spirit, that we will be led by Him, that we will keep in step with Him, and that that will show by Jesus being glorified in us, that our hearts be melted with adoration for Him and love for for the Lord Jesus, gratitude to Him, aspiration to know him and to serve him and to reach ever higher and higher in our service of him. Oh God, do not let us be lazy and lukewarm, but oh God, let us be burning in spirit, as scripture says, and by the Holy Spirit, let the love of Christ compel us and may he be glorified through what we do and what we say. In Jesus' name. Amen.